So that said, let's open our Bibles to Judges chapter 18. Judges chapter 18. Before we start, I want to go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, I'm thankful for this church. I'm thankful how you've raised up different people for different tasks and for different um, ministry opportunities. Have you cultivated in their hearts uh, a desire to serve the people in the church and outside the church? And Lord, we ask that if you, as we continue to grow in our knowledge of you, that our hearts and our affections will be grow, will grow in in Christ likeness. Lord, we ask that um, you can be with us tonight as we're studying your word, and even for those that are uh, away for the NCT conference, that you would be with them as well, that they would learn how to apply your word practically into their lives and how to sharpen uh, their Bible knowledge to, to care for one another. Lord, be with us this evening as we go through this text. Uh, may we be people that uh, are worn by the follies of sin, Lord. Thank you for this time that we have. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen. One of the things I'm really fascinated with, maybe just a little quirk of mine, is that I, I'm fascinated by spies. Not because I am a spy or that I know that some of you are spies, but I'm fascinated by different stories that are particularly about spies, like things like James Bond are, are interesting to me. Uh, and I know those are fiction, but when you hear about sort of, a, of like real spies, it's even more fascinating. After 9-11, there was this uh, terrorist organization, and one of the leaders there was saying, well, he was like a high-ranking official telling everyone to just go destroy America and all of these different propaganda things. And not long after he made these viral posts uh, to try to get people to go attack the U.S., he defected. He went to the CIA and told them, hey, I am leaving. I'm gonna, uh, I, w- I, want to, I want to be able to leave this behind. I want to work with you. And at first the CIA was like, you're totally lying. And he's like, no, no, I'll, I'll feed you information. I'll give you what you need so you know that I'm telling the truth. And for months at a time, he was feeding them legitimate information. And it was like they were able to stop certain threats. They're also uh, capture different individuals and prevent things from happening. So they took this guy seriously. They said, okay, this guy, maybe he really did defect. So they told him, okay, well, you'll be a double agent for us. You will go into this terrorist group and you'll, tell, and you'll feed us more information. You'll make them think that you are not working for us. So he agreed. He did that. He, he, for months, he, he was playing this role of a double agent. This was going on for months and years at a time. And one day, uh, the CIA agents wanted to celebrate after like, years of, of collaborating with him. But like, okay, this guy's legit. He's one of us. So they decided to celebrate his birthday. And he brought a cake this little cake to celebrate his birthday. And when they got there, this, this, this high-ranking terrorist person had a bomb strapped to himself, and he blew himself up along with the CIA agents. Turns out he was a triple agent. He was an agent working for terrorists, pretending to be with the Americans, but really working for another terrorist organization. This book, was, was, this, was, this real event was chronicled this book called The Triple Agent. And spies are cool to read about and learn about because of how intricate they are and they have to deal with these complex situations. And throughout this whole situation, they're thinking, how can this happen? How can we be tricked into believing that this person was on our side? Spies are always fun and interesting to read until you realize that there is a spy against you. In our Christian life, we must view our life as a war against sin. The Christian is described as a soldier. 
In 1 Timothy, Paul describes, tells Timothy to, to, that he finished the good fight, that he told him to be a good soldier for Jesus Christ. We are called in Galatians to wear the armor of God. There's all, this is all of these different imagery that the New Testament writers use to describe our spiritual state, that it is a war. Our, but we understand that our fight is not with weapons and not with physical weapons, but it's with the mind, it's with the spiritual realm, it's, the, it's with the worldviews. And our weapon is not anything physical, but with the word of God. The devil is the enemy, and the, and the, and the means by which he, he uses to infiltrate our lives is sin. And sin functions like a spy. It, it feeds us false information. It trains us to think a certain way. It makes us think about things that are not really there. This is how it works. Sin is like a spy. It's, it's covert. It sneaks into your life and is seemingly harmless in the beginning. Sin makes you think that you are on the side of good while it's really slowly inching you away to destruction. Sin can give you the appearance of loyalty, but it won't take long before sin turns on you. And when sin turns against you, it will have a devastating effect in your life. And there's something alluring about sin that gives us this false impression that this sin will not hurt us. But make no mistake, sin will ruin your life as well as mess up your walk with Jesus. Last week, Drew preached on chapter 17. I'm thankful that he handled the text really well. And just to summarize, this is a time that's different from the rest of the book of Judges, in that there is no judge here. It doesn't begin by explaining how these people are crying out to God, but it's, it's explaining there's, there was a time where there was a man named Micah, and he, he stole money from his mom, and his mom placed a curse on the, whoever stole uh, his, his, her, her silver. Find out later that it was, it was her son, and then she decides, okay, I'm going to give you a blessing instead. So she takes some of these gold and gives it to him, and he makes his little idol. He makes his little idol for himself. And you notice in chapter 17, verse 5, that he made an ephod, which is something that a priest would wear. And there was a household Idols, and this was plural, meaning that he had multiple types of idols. It wasn't just one silver idol. He had a whole bunch of them laying around. And, then it, and seemingly random time, this, this one Levite came, this priest came, and he said, hey, do you want to work for me? You should totally work for me. And he, and he, and he said, like, he asked him in verse 9, Micah said to him, where do you come from? He said, I am a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to stay wherever I may find a place. And you remember that the priests did not have a location. They didn't have a plot of land. The, the God gave the land to all the 11 tribes, and the priests will go to each tribe, and he's, and he's supposed to work in each of these places. And it said in the book of Joshua that the priest's inheritance isn't a land, but God himself. So the priest goes from place to place. And this one particular priest here is this nameless priest, goes and, and he gets, gets this job offer from Micah. He offers him 10 pieces of silver and a suit of clothes, which is basically like a suit, and, and, and gives him sustenance. And the, and the Levite agrees. He agrees to be this person's personal priest. And at the end, Micah said, Now I know I, the Lord will prosper me, seeing I have a Levite as a priest. And you remember at the very end of last week, Drew spoke about how some people think that if they have some sort of religious background, that God will give them what they want. And this is what Micah is thinking. He's thinking, well, if I have this Levite, this Levite will be this, the intermediate person between me and God, then for sure I will be blessed. 
And the story here, chapter 18, picks up from that. So as a way for us to hang our thoughts, if you want to root out sin in your life, you want to be able to discern about the sin that's like a spy that's kind of creeping into your life, you must know how they operate. So here are three markers that you need in your mind to ensure that you will not be destroyed by sin. The moment you see these clues in your life, the moment that there's certain things that, that's, that, that operate a certain way, you, it, should, it should trigger your mind, okay, red flag, or I need to turn from this, or flee, or fight it. So we're going to look at these three things, these little signals of these spies, these, these little three attributes that we can see, the, so we can dis- discern what sin will do, so we can confront and fight sin. First thing is that sin dilutes the word of God. Sin dilutes the word of God. It was in verse 1. In those days, there, were no king of, of, there was no king of Israel, and in those days, the tribe of Danites was seeking an inheritance for themselves to live in. For until that day, an inheritance had been allotted to them as a possession among the tribes of Israel. This phrase here sounds familiar, doesn't it? There is no king in Israel. This, this, it was earlier in chapter 17, verse 6, and it will show up two more times in these last five chapters. Each of them are, desin- are designed to show the reader what happens when there is no king in the land of Israel. Remember, this book is written by Samuel, and Samuel writes this with the intention to show the Israelites, to make them remember what happens when there is no king. Samuel tried to write this to make them look to a king, a future king, a better king. The time some people think was Saul, and then, you know, he was a terrible king, and Saul tried to point... And, Saul was like a messed up king, and Samuel tried to point them to a better king. And the role of the king is not like a priest. A priest is supposed to be the mediator between God and man. He's supposed to make all of these sacrifices, but the king is supposed to check evil. When he sees sin, he was supposed to go against those people. He was supposed to execute judgment on those that are doing sin, that are committing sin. In fact, the king is supposed to write down, make a copy of the law of Moses. That's so that he knows the word of God, so that he can execute and discern right and wrong. And this is a time where there wasn't, wasn't any king. There weren't any king that was able to, to execute uh, judgment on those who were committing great sin. This is why sin is going rampant. There's, there's no one to check them, there's no one to correct them, no one to, to execute them because of their sin. Now, everyone here in this, in this time is doing what's right in their own eyes. And we know that throughout the entire Bible, there is no earthly king that, that, that can leave an everlasting change. But there will be one king one day down the line that will destroy and remove the horrors of all sin from this planet. And we know this is our Lord Jesus Christ. Only when he reigns that, this, that there will be a cease in the effects of sin in this world. Israel as a whole is completely out of control, and they need someone to tell them that they're doing something wrong. The Danites, these were people that were nomadic groups of people. That's what they had no land that they were part of. They just kind of go from place to place. And the Danites were the same people that Samson came from. And the phrase that I've said throughout, every time I preach through this passage in this book, is that sin makes you stupid. If you commit your life to sin, you're essentially committing your life to, to stupidity. Sin makes you stupid. And this is what's going on here. They're making all of, you'll see as we continue going on, they're making all of these deals with different people. And it's like, what is going on? It's because they're blinded by their own sin. Verse 2. 
So sons of Dan sent from their family five men out of their whole number, valiant men from Zorah and Ishtil, to spy out the land and to search it. And they said to them, Go search the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. These five Danites went to explore a land that they wanted, and this should sound familiar, uh, because in you know, the book of Joshua and even in Numbers, are, there was these spies that went to this different land to like, look at the promised land. They wanted to see if this place is worth taking. Verse 3, when they were near the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of, of the young man, the Levite, and they turned aside there and said to him, who brought you here, and what are you doing in this place? And what do you have here? As they were going over this land, there was a seemingly serendipitous event where they heard the voice of this Levite. I'm not sure how they knew that this was Levite. Maybe he said something that that only a Levite would say, or maybe they knew of this person. But whatever it is, they're able to recognize this person's voice. And they asked him, what is he doing there? And the question is that they wouldn't know which, which land he was serving in, like, this priest, according to Joshua, was not given any land, and they had a responsibility to all of the tribes. They want to know, like, which one are you working for? Which land are you part of? And what are you doing? They're wondering if he was doing his job and where he was working. Essentially, when they looked at this priest, when they found out he was here, they said, in their mind, they said, this seemed out of place. So they were just asking him questions. Verse 4, he said to him, thus, and so has Micah done to me, and he has hired me, and I have become his priest. The priest here tells him that he was hired by Micah to be his personal priest. You know, the problem here is that they, they claimed to worship God, but they worshiped it according to their own terms. They wanted the God of Israel, but they also wanted to worship him the way these people wanted it, in their own hearts, what their own desires were. It is on their terms as opposed to what God expects his people, expects his people how to worship him. The world in our modern day actually is telling the churches now that they don't really have a problem with Christianity, quote-unquote. They just have a problem with certain things that we teach or certain lifestyles that we hold. Basically, Christianity looks like the world instead of being distinct from the world. They don't want us to teach certain things about the Bible or live a certain lifestyle. And some things the world like, but others not so much. The world wants Christianity to look like the world. And I think some of you here are like this. You want the joys of Christianity. You want the perks of Christianity. You want to be the comfort of the church. You want to have friends and be part of all these different activities. But you only want Christianity if it's in your own terms. The moment people start confronting your sin, you say, I'm out. There's some people that think that Christianity is about their desires. Christianity isn't about you. It involves you, but it is not centered around you. And Micah and the Danites were both people that claimed to worship God, but they did what was actually right in their own eyes. All the things that they were doing, they're worshiping a God that isn't really the God of Israel. Now, what about you? Some of you are adding and taking away passages of Scripture in your life. And I'm not saying that you actually open your Bible and start blacking out things or whiting out things or tearing out pages. But you know that every single time you live a life of compromise, you're practically saying to the world that certain passage of Scripture doesn't matter. You show the world that there are certain verses that we do not need to take seriously. You are trying to define Christianity in your own terms. And Christianity does not call you to use the name of Christ to defend your sin. 
Rather, Christianity calls us to, to have a wholehearted devotion to Jesus Christ and to his word, and to live according to, that, to his word. Verse 5, they said to him, inquire of God, please let, please, that we may know whether our way on which we are going will be prosperous. These spies were, were content with this priest's answer, and they began to ask him to intercede for him. They want to know if what they're doing is going to give them prosperity. It's going to give them success. Verse 6, the priest said to him, go in peace. Your way in which you're going has the Lord's approval. This priest simply just tells them that, yeah, well, just go and go about your thing. God is totally going to bless you. Now, this priest actually did not intercede for the people. There wasn't any of those umen and thuum things. There wasn't any prayer. There wasn't any sacrifice offered. There wasn't anything that shows that this priest actually went to God. He just spoke what came, what was actually good to hear to the listener. There was nothing here that indicated that he took his position seriously or that he sought out the will of God. This is what sin does. Sin always dismisses the the word of God for the sake of pragmatism. Sometimes it isn't just pragmatism, but rather just what they want to hear. First Timothy chapter, Second Timothy chapter four tells us in the last days there will be people that that want to just hear the things that cater to their flesh. Second Timothy chapter four: For the time will come that they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And this was going on at this time in the Old Testament as well. They wanted a leader that tickled their ears, that fulfilled their, their sinful desires. People who focus on their idols will never think about the word of God. Or if they will, they'll always try to use the Bible to justify their sinful tendencies. And this is what is going on in this section. These people wanted to hear what they wanted to hear. And this priest gave them what they wanted. He essentially encouraged their sin. Now, if you think about how sin works like a spy, that's how they infiltrate your life. They start diluting the word of God in your mind. They make you not take God's word seriously. Now, is this you? Are you someone that is making compromises to justify your own sinful lifestyle? Are you, attempting, are you someone that is attempting to force God's will into your sinful life instead of just submitting to the will of God. I remember when, when I was just different phases of my life where people began dating non-Christians. And when they start dating non-Christians, I asked them, like, you, you know, you know like I was I'll confront them on it, and they'll say, you know, the Bible actually doesn't speak on dating. So you can't tell me that you can't date non-believers. That's actually true. The Bible doesn't speak on dating, but they speak on marriage. But there's also principle that guards someone, that should guard someone from pursuing a relationship with a non-believer. And they'll justify, they'll say, look, I'm doing evangelism, aren't I? I'm totally doing evangelism. I'm trying to win the loss of Christ by pursuing this relationship. Or another instance will be like, oh, I'm praying a lot more. I'm praying for this. My, my prayer life is so much more now because I have to pray for this individual. Or I'm studying God's word more because I need to answer this person's questions. So let me pursue my sin. And even, inevitably, they will hold on to the relationship. It goes from dating to engagement. And, and it's like, hey, why are you engaged to this person? And eventually, those compromises will build up. They'll just say, I don't care. We've talked about this before. 
and I'm just talking in terms of dating, but every other sin in your life, every decision in your life, it's either you're honoring the Lord or you're dishonoring the Lord. That's just how, uh, how life is. It's that polarizing. It's that uh, binary. You either are doing something that's honoring to the Lord or you're doing something that's pleasing to your own flesh. And if you're trying to do something that's pleasing to your flesh, you'll, you'll notice that you start making lies and excuses. You start turning God's word for the sake of your own desires. Not only does sin dilute the word of God in your life for the sake of your sinful pleasures, but sin also corrodes your morality. Our second point is that sin corrodes morality. Verse 7 to 26. If you are to weed out the spies in your life, we must remember that sin corrodes your morality. It forces you not to be loyal to God, but it makes you loyal to yourself. It makes you loyal to sin, which in turn makes you loyal to the devil. Verse 7. Then the five men departed and came to Laish and saw the people who were in it living, uh, living in security. After the manner of the, of the Sidonians, quiet and secure. For there was no ruler humiliating them for anything in the land, and they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. When they came back to their brothers at Zorah and Eshtolo, their brother said to them, What do you report? They said, Arise, and let us go up and go up against them, for we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. And will you sit still? Do not delay to go, to enter, to possess the land. When you enter, you will come to a secure people with a, with a spacious land, for God has given it into your hand, a place where there is no lack of anything that is on the earth. These Danites got a few of their men. They saw this land, and, and, and they liked what they saw, and they went back to report it. And I'm going to just step back a little bit and, and give you like a little Bible lesson on how to interpret the Old Testament. The Old Testament writers had context in terms of they understood how every, uh, they understood every revelation that came before them, right? So jo- judges came, they, they, the, they had to understand the book of Joshua and, every, and the Torah and everything that came before it. So whenever an Old Testament writer writes a story that seems familiar, one thing that you need to be aware of is, is the significance comes from the differences, the author is attempting to bring to mind something that they remember while showing a little difference. And that's the major point of the passage. In this case, this should sound familiar because it's the same events as the book of Numbers and in Joshua where the spies went out to look at the promised land. In both cases, in those two books, they saw the land and are required to trust the Lord as they overthrow those inhabitants. But the difference between that, those two episodes and this one is that in this one, God is missing entirely. God is not present. God is not there. He's not telling them to do anything. They are the people that are just kind of doing what's right in their own eyes. The point the author of Judges is trying to make is that they're doing this because they have no king in the land, and they're doing it on their, on their accord. These spies went out, and what, and what is a common phrase throughout this portion when they describe this land is that it's a quiet and secure place. Meaning that these people were peaceful, that they were separated from other pagan nations. They had no connections in dealing with other nations around them, so it was a tactical disadvantage for them. They were isolated by themselves. They had no backup. So these Danites, when they saw them in the secluded place, they liked what they saw, and they immediately went to bear arms. And there's this battle cry in verse 9 and 10. And what is interesting, at the end of verse 10, they repeated what the priest said to them. So they were 
working off of a message from a worldly priest that gave them a worldly message that centered around their worldly desires. False teachers that teach you what you want to hear are people that are, are not true teachers. And I think sometimes we, uh, we talk about like false teachers like, like, like the prosperity preachers. Like when, when Kelly and I were in Seattle, we, had, we, we don't have cable at home, but we were able to watch TV there. And, there, and we, I turned to TBN. I don't know how, why, but actually it was the first channel I turned, I turned to was TBN to show all these prosperity preachers. And, you know, we think, when we think of false teachers, we think of those individuals. But you understand that all teachers that teach anything contrary to God's word are a false teacher. So it's not necessarily just preachers per se, but it could be people like influencers, like people that are on social media that are trying to tell you, if you want to live a certain life of joy and happiness, these are things that you need to acquire. These are the places that you need to go. These are the food that you need to try instead of saying you need to be content in Christ. Or it could be a politician that tried to make you think that the only way for you to find peace in this world is if you vote for them. Or it could, if you're a college student, it could be just your professor, someone that's teaching something that's different from God's word. Whatever it may be, anyone that teaches anything contrary to God's word is a false teacher. Verse 11. Then from the family of the Danites, from Zorah and from Eshtol, 600 men armed with weapons of war set out. They went up and camped at Kareth Jerim in Judah. Therefore, they called the place Manathadan to this day. Behold, it is west of Kareth Jerim. They passed from there to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of, of Micah. So the narrator, the, the narrator goes from describing these 600 armed men. They went out and camped. And they were prepared for battle. But before they started, they had to make this little stop. Verse 14. Then the five men who went to spy out the country of Leash said to their kinsmen, Do you know that there are in these houses an ephod and household idols and graven images, and graven image and a molten image? And therefore consider what you should do. They turned aside there and came to the house of the young man, the Levite, to the house of Micah and, and asked him of his welfare. The 600 men armed with their weapons of war who were of the sons of Dan stood by the entrance of the gate. So these five men were like, hey, have you, did you hear about this? There's this one place with all these golden idols. All of these, there's a priest there. We should totally go and see. And then the, the whole army decided to go in front of this person's house, which I think is a very funny scene. You have all these valiant warriors like, huddling around this house. And verse 17. Now the five men who went to spy out the land went up and entered there and took the graven image and the ephod and household idols and the molten image while the priest stood by at the entrance of the gate with 600 men armed with weapons of war. So they raided this, this they raided, raided Michael's house. They heard about it, they went in, and then the priest just kind of standing like, um, guys? Uh, he didn't even actually start, he didn't say anything, he just kind of like, oh man. And you, and you had to give some sympathy for this little Levite because there's 600 guys with weapons raiding this guy's house. And the priest, again, he doesn't say anything. Um, he's obviously afraid, and he didn't want to choose to defend his master. And you know, this again, he doesn't care about any religious aspect, but only for his own survival. Verse 18, when, when these went into Micah's house and took the graven image, the ephod, the household idols, and the molten image, the priest said to him, what are you doing? And eventually, this priest speaks up, and, it's, and I think it's funny in verse 19. They said, be silent, put your hand over your mouth, and come with us, and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to be a priest to the tribe and family in Israel? 
And immediately they just brushed them aside and said, they told me quiet. And they convinced them that, hey, you should come with us. Why would you want to be a priest over one guy instead of being a priest to an entire nation? And it was one of those, like, it's an offer that you cannot refuse. You know, he is essentially in the eyes of this greedy priest, it's a promotion. Again, this should sound familiar because if you remember in chapter 17, verse 10, Micah offers him 10 pieces of silver and a suit to the priest, and, he, and, and it made him happy. He's like, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll be your priest. He was lured into his current position because of fleshly gains. And the moment he realized that there's something better, he goes after that. Sin corrodes your morality by making you look only to self-interest. If you ever wonder why people go from church to church, it's rarely because of something that is actually biblical. It's always because of something that they want in the moment. When I was in L.A., when I was in still my college years, there were people that were blatantly, it was so obvious that the reason why they were there was not because of the preaching and not because of the, and like worshiping the Lord or serving the church. They were only there because they wanted to pursue some sort of relationship. I remember when this one time, my shepherd came up to me. He's like, hey, you see the guy behind my left shoulder? I was like, yes. And he said, make sure he doesn't ask anyone out. And I was like, okay. <laughs> my, my, my shepherd told me, go, I'll go. I have no idea who this person was. He said, just make sure he doesn't take anyone's number. And I was like, what if he takes my number? But okay, whatever, he trusts me enough to do it. So let's do it. So I went, and, I, and sure enough, he was asking other people out for numbers. And I was like trying to be this weirdo, like, hey, 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 talk to me. Uh, you, ha- you want to have my number? Let's, let's hang out. And I was like trying to like be super weird and like try to ruin his like game, you know? And yeah, it turns out that he was, tr- he was actually trying to get both, you know, you know, this dude was like a bisexual. So he tried to get everyone's number. And eventually when the shepherd stopped him, like, hey, you cannot talk to anyone that is younger than you. You can only talk to the leadership. You can only fellowship with those that are, that are older and, and that are like seminary students or people that are in, the le- in leadership. And he was like, okay, I'm done. I don't want to be part of this Bible study anymore. The moment there was some resistance from what he wanted, it revealed what was truly in their hearts. Now the question is, why are you here in our church. The priest in this chapter is here for selfish gains. He wanted money and security, but I can't help but wonder if some of you are here for the same reason. Are you here to build some sort of connection, some networks where you can prosper from it? What are you trying to get out of church that's actually, is, is, is actually the wrong question? Again, Christianity is not about you. It's not centered around you. It involves you, and the same thing with the church. The church is not about you. It involves you. It's about serving the Lord, about knowing who he is so that we can be equipped to serve and honor the Lord, to love the Lord and serve others. If you come to church for anything except worshiping God, you will eventually leave when either your fleshy desires are not met or if there's another church that can give you something that caters to your flesh. Look at verse 20. The priest's heart was glad, and he took the ephod and the household idols and grave image and went among the people. Look at this priest. His heart became glad. This word glad is to mean, this makes him pleased. It warms his heart. What he heard would made him feel good on the inside. This exact same word was, is used in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 6, when Nehemiah was sad and he wanted to reap because he knew that the, the city walls are broken, he wanted to rebuild that city. And then the king and queen asked him, when are you going to return? And he said, I'll return at this particular time. And that made 
the king and queen happy because they knew that he was going to come back, that he wasn't trying to escape, that he was, like, that he was going to fulfill his responsibilities and come back to, to serve them. This is the same word. This, this idea of like making their heart warm. Before I, got, before I started dating Kelly, the, the common phrase I would hear whenever I asked someone out is, you're a good guy, and I think we should just be friends. And I hate it. There's like an echo thing that just happens every time. But then the sweetest noise was when I asked Kelly out, and she told me, I'm down to date you. I was like, that's so cool. And then I, like, I remember just that <laughs> echoed in my mind the whole night. I did not sleep that night. And what surpassed that line was when she said, I do. That was the sweetest noise I've heard from my wife. And there's, that's like the second, I think, in all of eternity. That would be, be number two. The first one would be, well done, my faithful servant. That's what I want to hear. That's like the sweetest noise I'll ever hear. Second would be Kelly saying, I do. And third, maybe like Ruby laughing. And fourth, like my wife asking if I want to get some McDonald's. You know, it would make my heart glad. That's this picture here. The priest heard something that the, the priest heard their offer, and it made his heart really glad. He realized that this was a promotion, so he just took all his thing and left with the, with the crowd. The priest got to minister to a larger crowd. And you have to understand, for a priest, when they have a large crowd, that means they have more food and income. I'm, I'm, in my own time right now, I'm, I'm studying through the book of Leviticus. And in chapter Three, when they start doing these love offerings, part of the portion of those food goes to the priest. You know, and the same, same with chapter two, like certain things go to the priest. So, every, so you have to think if you are a priest, a selfish, greedy priest, you think, oh, I'm going to have security. Everyone's going to give me all of these food and I can just do all the things. I just basically I have like job security. His responsibility was not to the Lord or to, or to the people, but he cared about his own selfish desires. Sin makes you ultimately not loyal to God. Sin makes you long for immoral, immoral things. Now I have to ask you all, and even myself, what makes your heart glad? What are the things in your life now that makes you glad that may not be something that is pleasing to the Lord? What are the things in your life that is, at one time it could be a Christian livery that's become enslaving to you? What are the things in your life that you find that is, that is pleasurable, and it's not something that is you know, inherently sinful, but has slowly become sin in your life. This priest is supposed to be an intercessor between man and God, and at this point, and in this time of the book of Judges, he offers his service to the highest bidder. The reason why he wasn't doing his job is because sin corroded his morality, in which corroded his sense of duty. He did not do what he was supposed to do because he focused on his own desires. Verse 21. Then they turned and departed and put the little ones and the livestock and the valuables in front of them. And uh, verse 22, when they had gone some distance from the house of Micah, the men who were in the house near Micah's house assembled and overtook the sons of Dan. They cried out to the sons of Dan who turned around and said to Micah, what is the matter with you that you have assembled together? So Danites grabbed everything, all the precious cargo, and they put it in the front. And different commentators are like, oh, the reason why it's in the front is because it's cowardly. Like, in, like Jacob in Genesis 30, they put all the things in front. So if anything happened, there'll be like a huge meat shield before it gets to the, the soldiers. And understand that when they said livestock and little ones, it means like children and animals. So they put everything uh, else in the front, and, they, and they, they, the army itself was in the back. The other way to look at it is that the Danites were, were strategic. They said that they knew that the attacks would usually come from behind, so they put all the valuables in the front so that if, in, order for get to, in order for enemies to get to the valuables, they would go through 
the backside where, where the whole army is. I don't think that's the point of whatever you, side people take. I think the point is that they took everything and they left, and then Micah comes chasing after them. So the Micah shows up and, he's, and, and he tells them, and he asks them, like, what do you want? What's, what's the matter with you? Why have you stopped us? And verse 24, he said, you have taken away my gods which I made and the priests and have gone away, and what do I have besides? So how can you say to me, what is the matter with you? He tells them that he has every right to be upset. He took away his gods. He took away his priests. took away all his graven images. And, it's like, and he's like, how dare you challenge my anger? This is righteous indignation. And look, if you worship a god that can be taken away, it's probably not a god that you want to worship. It is folly to worship any false idols. This is why in the New Testament, Christ tells us don't cherish the things in the world where moth can destroy and thieves can steal. You know, it's because these things are things that are temporal. They could be removed. These aren't real gods. These are idols. Your idols are not something that will stay with you. No matter how much you cherish it, there is always a possibility that someone will destroy it or someone will take it or nature itself will destroy it. It will not have any long, uh, it won't have any longevity. Your idols can perish, stolen, lost, or even leave you. In the end of 1 John he gives a warning to the people. The very last verse, little one, guard yourselves from idols. This is the, the word guard. is again, a war type of language. Protect yourselves from these idols that will lure you away from the Lord. Now ask yourself, if there are any idols in your life, know this. If you know that there are idols in your life, there's a certain reality that the idols that, that are always carried by you Whereas the biblical Christianity, we worship God that carries you. Idols always, are always carried by you, whereas the biblical God, the God of the Bible, is a God that carries you. So how foolish it is for you to hold on to something that will not hold you up in this life or the next. Worship the one true living God. So again, think about your life. What are things in your life that you're holding on to? that is making you love it more than the God that created it? What are some of the things that you have, the, the resources or the relationships you have that you are idolizing that you should not idolize? Again, I'm not saying these things are wrong inherently, but what is so deceptive about Christian liberty is that it comes in the form of biblical doctrine. It comes with these verses saying, oh, it's okay to indulge in this. It's okay to buy this. It's okay to do this or that. And they mask with, with verses. But you have to check your own heart. Where are your affections? What do you love most? If you lose this, whatever this may, thing may be, will you still have joy? Or will you be angry at the Lord the way Micah is angry because he lost all of his idols? Verse 25. The sons of Dan said to him, Do you... Not let your, do not let your voice be heard among us, or else fierce men will fall upon you, and you will lose your life with the lives of your household. So the sons of Dan went on their way, and when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his house. Dan has essentially just scolded him, said, if you don't stop yelling at us, we're going to end your life. And then they just walked away. He's like, again, pretty tough thing to do, and Micah just stood there like, oh, fine. And he just walks away, he goes home. Micah just turns out, he, all of his labor, all the things that he, all of the, the hope that he had. Remember, at the end of uh, chapter 17, he said he will, the Lord will prosper him. And at this point, he lost everything. All his idols are gone. 
And this priest that was like supposed to be loyal to him, that was, in, that was described as almost like a son to him in chapter 17, he's gone. And this is just how, how, how sin works. Sin is never loyal. It's not, it rather is never loyal to you. It's against you. Sin will turn on you. Sin will corrode your moral compass to the point where you will not realize that you're actually being harmed by sin. So how do you know if what you are, how do you know if this is happening in your life? How do you know if your morality is corroding? Well, I think one indicator is that you stop thinking about the word of God or you stop reading the word of God. If you notice a pattern in your life where, the, where you're being drifting apart from God's word, there's a chance that, you, that your life is not right. If you find yourself not reading God's word, not desiring time to pray or to, to meditate on the word of God, that's a, there's a chance that your morality is corroding. And oftentimes, it will come up in different ways. When you're left with a choice between something that's sinful or not, you, you start ignoring the verses in your mind. You just start indulging in sin. You start searing your conscience, if we use New Testament terms. That's one way. You, you know, you'll notice that your Bible reading comes less and less. Another way is that other people confront you. That's the most obvious thing. People confront you on your sin. They look at your life. They say, hey, this is not biblical. They confront you, and then you realize that, okay, uh, this, the life that I'm living is corroding my moral, God's moral, stand, God's moral standard. And this is where you need to be mindful. People confront your sin, see it as an instrument of the Lord and a blessing to you so that you can repent from your sin. Sin will corrode your moral compass. I'm using this word compass a lot. Do you know how compass work? Like it's supposed to point to north, right? Like, like north, wherever that, where are we? Wherever north is. See, I don't have a compass, internal compass. But if you put a magnet next to a compass long enough, eventually it will not point north anymore. It will point to wherever that magnet is because that's just the way the mag- magnets work in a compass. It just messes everything up inside so, the, so it doesn't know where true north really is. That's the same way of sin. If you're close to sin long enough, it will make you think that what you're doing is actually right. Again, this is a time of judges where they were all doing what's right in their own eyes. And I fear for some of you that you're living your life with a sinful magnet near you, that you are not actually living according to God, but you may think that. And again, you need to always check yourself with God's word, always Dive and, and use your mind to engage the word of God so that you can faithfully live according to his word. Not only does sin dilute the word of God, and it does, not only does it corrode your moral compass, but sin is lastly destructive. Sin is destructive, verse 27 to the end of the chapter. Then they took what Micah had made and the priests who had belonged to him and came to Laish to the people, quiet. To the, to the people, quiet and secure, and struck them with the edge of a sword, and they burned the city with fire. And there was no one to deliver them because it was far from Sidon and had no dealings with anyone. And it was in the valley which is near Beth Rahab. And they built and they rebuilt the city and lived in it. Danites went in and they destroyed everything. And you notice again this, this phrase, quiet and secure. The author uses this phrase to show the reader that these people, although immoral and not perfect, were at least peaceful people and did not want to hurt other people. They were an unsuspecting group of individuals that were isolated from the rest of the world. And these Danites preyed on these people. 
They were the perfect targets for the Danites. 29. They called the name of the city Dan after the name Dan, their father, who was born in Israel. However, the name of the city formerly was Laish. The sons of Dan set up for themselves the graven image, and Jonathan, the sons of Gershom, the sons of Manasseh, he and his sons were priests to the tribe of Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. The Danites were they, they destroyed they were they destroyed all of Laish and then they made this the, these different individuals priests. These were not people that that were supposed to be priests. Remember, last week Drew spoke on this and I'll remind us that the priest is supposed to be one particular line. So would be the line of Levi. And those are the only people that can be priests. But in this situation, uh, they they were decided to ordain another person that was not even qualified morally, but they didn't even they didn't even qualify in terms of bloodline. They, they should not be there. Again, this is how backwards they have all become. They are worshiping an idol with a priest that shouldn't be a priest. Now, although they called themselves Danites, they were, they were part of the quote-unquote covenant people of God. They fail to see their lifestyle does not live up to what God expects of them. I uh, read this story about Alexander the Great, and I've shared this with some of you before, where Alexander the Great was... He's a great military man, and one time, he was, one night, he was walking around and just kind of inspecting the place, and he noticed there was a soldier that was asleep. He wakes the soldier up, and then the soldier is all like, you know, disheveled, and he asks him, "What is your name?" And then the soldier said, "Alexander." And he asks him again, "What is your name?" And the soldier said, "Alexander." Again, your name, Alexander Great. You see this soldier named Alexander. And he told them that you, you need to change. Either you need to change your life. Or you need to change your name. And that's the same, it's a good principle for us. If we call ourselves Christians and we're living in sin, you either repent of your lifestyle or you need to change your identification. If you're professing to be a Christian, you must live up to that name. Are you worthy to call yourself a Christian? You know, some of us know the Bible passage says we are called to live in a manner worthy of our life, worthy of our profession. Does our life live up to that? If you allow sin in your life, it will first wreck your testimony, and then it will wreck your life. So how are you in terms of fighting sin? Are you living a worldly life? Ask yourself these questions. How are you spending your money? Is it the way that a Christian would spend their money? If, if let's say, a, your non-believing friend saw you in the church and they saw you speak, would they think, hey, that's not how you talk to me at work? Or what about if I was able to take all your smartphones and all your devices and your computer and I just checked your search history? Or what about your social media? What are the things that you're posting? Does it faithfully represent who God is? Does it represent everything that the Bible expects of us? Sin is a parasite that will drain you of your spiritual life if you aren't mindful of its dangers. It will ruin your testimony before other people, but worse, it will ruin your testimony as a Christian. It will make God seem like a fool. Verse 31. So they set up for themselves Micah's graven image, which, which he had made all the time that the house of God was at Shiloh. What is crazy about this last verse is that the Danites adopted an idolatrous system of religion. Instead of worshiping the true God, they chose to worship a God that they just stole from someone else. And what is strange is that it says there's a temple of the true God in Shiloh. It means that it wasn't even that far from them. They could have just went there instead of just built their own. It was not far from where they were at, but instead they chose the comfort of their own idolatry. Sin 
is destructive, and it will hurt you and those around you. There is no such thing as an isolated sin. Every sin will impact your life and other areas of your life. You need to be mindful of the small compromises you allow in your life because it will grow and it will go without your it will go unnoticed in your life. You need to check sin. It doesn't need you to water sin. You don't need to water sin. It just grows on its own. And it will grow and grow to the point where it will destroy you. That's what James chapter 1 verse 15 tells us, where when, the, when your own heart is deceived into sin, it will just mature and the point it brings death. And we know that the consequences of sin is death. All of us, due to both of our sinful nature and action, will lead us to destruction. And for those of you that are Christians, you must see that your sin is not compatible with your faith. If you truly want to represent Jesus, and w- then you need to walk closely with him. That means you must be far from sin. You must be willing to cast out and cut off every sinful pleasures in your life. And whatever things that cause you to sin, cut those things out. How do you know? So the question is, how do I know if I'm at the point where it's destroying my life? How do I know that this sin is destroying my life? The question is, are you, do you find yourself just miserable all of the time? Do you find yourself anxious? Are you someone that's just joyless? Because that's what sin does. When David sinned against Bathsheba, there was this time period where he said his, his bones were just rotting away. And that's what sin does. It corrodes your joy. It, it hurts you. It may give you this temporal pleasure. But in the long haul, if you let it fester in your life, it will destroy you. It will make you always want more. It's something that is insatiable. You're always wanting, but you're never satisfied. And that's what sin does in your life. How do you know that you're being corroded? How do you know sin is destroying your life? Is that you're never happy. And that's what the uh, Christian life is, feels, is supposed to be filled with. It's supposed to be filled with joy. And sin removes that joy from you because you are not made to sin. You're made to live your life for the glory of God by living a life of holiness, something that's distinct. That is what God made you for. Sin, although it acts like a spy and, and it does leave leaves clue for us and let us know the effects. And the only way for you to identify these things if you are if you look to scripture and when you notice these things in your life, you need to root out those things in your life. The entire narrative here is summarized in this very first verse that they did these things because there was no king in Israel. There was no king in Israel. There was no righteous rule to rule over them. There was no one to confront them on sin. They didn't confront each other on sin. They did what they want. They acted on their sinful instincts, their own impulses, and their own interests. What they did was evil in the sight of the Lord because they were ruled over by their own sin. And the principle for us to draw, take away from this is, who is the king in your life? If Jesus Christ is truly reigning in your life, then you know that there is a king in your life. And that king is Jesus Christ. And whatever he says goes. If he tells you to stop being in that relationship with someone, you are willing to end it because that's what God expects of you. If Christ tells you that the way that you communicate with each other is filled with sin and perversion, you need to stop the way, you need to repent of those things. You need to put off sinful speech and put off words that are are encouraging that builds up the body. 
If you're, if you're always gossiping and slandering, understand the Proverbs describe that God hates those things. You need to repent of those things. You need to, you, it's better that you say nothing than to say anything that defames the name of our Lord. And why? Because we worship a king that is worthy of our, of our whole life. Everything that we do should be wanting to please him, that we want to give everything because of how much he gave to us. He came into the world sinless. He lived that perfect life. He, Jesus Christ, submitted to the will of the Father. Even though it was difficult for him to go to the cross, he was willing to let go of his life so that you and I could be made right with God. He died on the cross for our sins. And he rose three days later, promising us that if we place our faith in him, that not only will we have new life now, that we not only will have this new desire to live for him, but that we'll have eternal life with him for all time. So for those of you who are a believer, that are struggling with sin, you need to understand the way to fight sin is know who your allegiance is. If you're, if you're faithful to the Lord, if your allegiance is with him, you will find all the sins in your life, all the spies, and you will just get rid of all of them. But if you're ruled by sin, you will, be, you will willingly give yourself over to sin because you might think of oh, these pleasures are more desirable than what God has to offer in eternity. And, that's, and there's a danger for you if you live that way because you live in that way. There's going to be many people there are going to be, you're going to be one of those guys that are going to go to hell and would say, hey, well, didn't I go to church? Didn't I go, wasn't I part of this Bible study? And the Lord will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. Christ said that if you love me, you will, you will keep my commandments. So fight sin. Keep God's commandment. Don't make moral compromises in your life because those things will lead to destruction. It will wreck your life, but more importantly, it will wreck your walk with the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, we're thankful for your grace in our life. In the moments that we fail, we know that you have given us new mercies each day. And Lord, I pray that as we think about that, we think about new mercies every day, that it causes us to love you more. We are not worthy of your grace. We're not worthy of your mercies and your kindness, your goodness, and all that you are. You've offered yourself so that we can be made right with you. It is something that we will never fully grasp But, Lord, we ask and we plead with you that we live a life of obedience. Lord, may your word not be diluted in our hearts and minds. May our morality not be corroded because of sin. And may we not ruin our life because of the the destructive nature of sin. But, Lord, may we hate sin the way you hate sin. Grow us into maturity. Cause us to take sin seriously because you took it seriously. You took it so serious that you wanted to kill your own son so that we can be made right with you. Lord, be with us this weekend and the following week. May we live holy and pure lives so that we can honor you, uh, so we can find true and lasting joy in the way that we live. Be with us now as we fellowship, as we discuss these questions. Um, may it cause us to think not just for tonight, but, to the, but, but every day. May we meditate on the truth that is revealed so that we can live a life that is worthy of your name, Lord. We thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.